Hello and welcome to the all-inclusive podcast with James Sinfield and today's discussion will revolve around the topic of football culture and hooliganism. Uh, the discussion will involve the fascination with football, why hooliganism is so rife in association with football, um, if you were football rivalry, drinking culture in football and the LGBT side or LGBTQ um, plus side of football and why there's so many issues in the sports. So whilst my guest today is Jason, who is a very passionate, avid football fan, who's been to uh, many matches and supports more than one team, which I don't seem to understand. So just um, just introduce yourself briefly and we'll kick off from there. No pun intended. Oh, okay. Well, as you said, you know, I'm an avid football fan. Um, you're being unfair by saying I support more than one team. I'm a Lake Orient fan, first and foremost. I did grow up following Arsenal, but uh, when I got to sort of like my, well, I'll touch on this a bit later, but when I got to sort of like my late teens, early 20s, and I started wanting to actually physically go to games following Premier League teams, it, it was just out of my price range. Also, trying to get tickets for these kind of games were just nine impossible. So, Lake Orient was always my dad's side. Um, they were always like a second team for me, so I started going to watch them. Um and it's provided many memories over the years, definitely. Okay, so um, with football, it seems to have a much of a less, uh, almost doesn't seem to have as much of a filter than other sports, football sports. For example, the NFL players are required to be out of high school for at, three, at least three years before they can play. The NBA, a player must be out of high school for at least one year before they can enter the draft. But in football, once a club decides that a player is ready, they could be introduced to the team, as in the case of Luke Shaw for Southampton and Raheem Sterling, from Liverpool, who both began playing professionally at the tender age of 17. So, firstly, what is the fascination with football and why does it seem to surpass all other sports, if it well, even does? It surpasses all other sports. I mean, that's a matter of um, personal opinion, really. I mean, in Britain, you know, it's the number one sport here, but it not, might not necessarily be in other countries. Like, um, you give the example of the USA, you know, NFL, basketball, um, ice hockey even, you know, they surpass football there. It's just, for us, it's our game. Um, I think the fascination with it is that it is, it's just such an easy game to play. Anyone can play it. You know, you go, you, you look at like um, the old stereotype of jumpers for goalposts, kids at school. What, what do you realistically need to play football? You know, a couple of jumpers on the ground to make a goal. Um don't even need a ball, empty can of Coke, empty carton of drink, just kick it about. Um, it, it's something that can just be done anywhere, you know, your front room, your back garden, in the street. Um, it, anyone can play in some way, shape or form, and I think it's that ease that is the appeal. And that it's also a very working class sport as well, even though it has its origins in sort of like the public schools of the 1800s, like of Eton and whatnot. It's almost like the, quote, posh sport is rugby and the working classes took association football, which then becomes soccer, as some countries call it. Um, yeah, it, it's just something that's been picked up by the working classes, I believe. Um, and that's, it's, it's almost like it gives people an escape. So, you know, you don't have to be from a rich family if you're an amazing footballer. You can be like a poor kid from Brazil or Senegal or, you know, poor African country and your skill can take you out of that life, if you know what I mean. Uh, as in Gabriel Jesus, I think that's his name. That, hmm. Brazil, came from a favela in Brazil. 
Yeah, I'm yeah, sure having studied. Did. They played in the favelas in Brazil. A lot of them didn't even have boots. Um, one of the reasons the Brazilians are so skilled is a lot of Brazilian players have said they used to play in the streets barefoot. They didn't even have boots or even a ball. It'd be like a tied up bit of leather or a bit of paper that's all banded together. Didn't um, India pull out of the war? They they weren't allowed to play in the World Cup because they wanted to play barefoot. <laughs> That is, a, that is a true story. Yes, it was the 1950 World Cup. Um, India did qualify and they want, wanted to play barefoot. Um, I think they were allowed to play one game and um, I'm not too 100% with the history of it, but they pulled out because they weren't allowed to play, play barefoot. But that was like a cultural thing at the time. Okay. I mean, look, I mean, we all think, I mean, football seems to rouse much more conversation than, I mean, you think golf and people just automatically think golf is just a very dull and very boring sport to watch and play. And same with cricket. I mean, cricket is a completely horrible game to play. It's so dull. It's so boring to watch, but people rave over it. So, I mean, what what are these? These these are quite um, British sports as well. And even hmm. bowls and indoor sports. Um, leave, leave I, mean, dark. Cricket, James. I mean, even cricket has a very avid following. Um, the British team, they have a very avid group of followers. Uh, they go by the name of the Barmy Army and they follow the English side worldwide. Um, okay, it's not, you know, I find as I'm getting older, I'm kind of developing more of an appreciation for cricket. <laughs> oh, <laughs> God. But, um, you know, it's horses for courses, really. I think football, just just the way the game is played and the way it is, just invokes emotion in people. It can, you know, people can go from ecstasy to agony in seconds. You know, if you take, um, say, for example, you've got a cup final um, and it's for, for example, the World Cup. Let's use the 1994 World Cup final as an example between Italy and Brazil, uh, which finished as a draw and went to a penalty shootout. You know, the last penalty, Roberto Baggio, and he misses, you know, in that second, you know, <laughs> it's just that balance and, um, you know, it, it's just those fine margins. It reminds me of the Gareth Gate missed penalty and the abuse that he got for that. God's sake, it's so graceful. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we will touch on a lot of that shortly as well. Um, yeah, Pete, that's, that's the other thing. Some people can't control their emotions when it comes to things like that. I mean, back then, um, Gareth Southgate, he missed that penalty, as you said. Um, he was lampooned and ridiculed in the national press, but can you imagine if social media was about back then? Oh, God. That was 1996, so 25 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's face- very hard to say that, <laughs> but can you imagine if Facebook and Twitter were about then? Same with yeah. 1990, David Batty missed that penalty for England against Argentina. The level of abuse probably would have been multiplied. I was going to mention something. I think it's also to do with the, to do with the fast-paced nature because I believe in 1992, 1992, the FA introduced the um, they banned the back pass to the goalkeeper. So if you pass back to the goalkeeper, he couldn't pick it up. So it encouraged a bit more um, fitness levels, and that actually make a made a massive difference. So it was... it, there's always been little tinkering with the rules and whatnot. Um, there's always been some sort of like the offside rule changed. Um, I think it was back in the early 80s. Um, you know, they've always played with the offside rule to encourage attacking play. Um, and yeah, I mean, like it's the fast nature of it and also the fact that it's a form of art. I mean, this is this is an, another issue I've it's been playing on my mind. I mean, this is why I don't wear my um, West Ham shirt anymore because people are so passionate and emotional. So why is it that people claim teams 
that have no relevance to their residents. So you have someone who supports Liverpool, but they have no association with that um, um, I think area. Um, I think there's various reasons, really. Um, when it comes to, like you say, there's people that might support teams in other cities or even in other countries. And there may be some sort of vague connection. Like they'll say, oh, well, my dad's brother supported it and he brought me a programme when I was five and I fell in love with it there. Um, something like that. It, it could be something as simple as, like, for me, um, I started following Arsenal as a child because up until that point, I didn't have the slightest clue, really. But it was the first team I saw play on the telly. Um, and I was like, oh, I like this. I'll take them as my team. It, it was as simple as that. It, it could be you read an article and, and also for some sides which are more successful than others, you might hear about them more. So you could, a child will be more inclined to follow a side they're hearing about that's winning things than say... Oh, oh yeah. Glory Hunters. Uh, yeah, people say Glory Hunters. Um, in, some, in some cases it's bad, in some cases it's not. <laughs> um, if you're changing teams constantly, then yes, you're a Glory Hunter, but you know, that's kind of frowned upon <laughs> yeah, but you get fans that are armchair fans and they've never been to a football game in their life and they just they don't place any bets they have no, it's just i they support team in the name of supporting the team it's just and just claiming um brownie brownie points when their team wins the fa cup fan that sits at home watching the sky um doesn't go to the games look you know going to an actual game is a completely different experience and you get to make your own judgments as well because if you watch a match on the telly, you've got if you've got the commentators on, you almost find yourself following the narrative that they're saying. It might not necessarily be right. Um, a pundit might have one view of something, and you might have another. You know, um, some might see a particularly bad tackle as being a red card and ascending off the fence, when another will be like, "Well, no, that's not." Um, it, it, there's a lot of subjective views, um, but if you go to a game, you immerse yourself in that experience, you make your own decisions. You know, it, it is completely different. Fair enough. I mean, um, I just completely washed um, my hands of uh, football a couple of years ago because, like I say, I couldn't wear my shirt if I was to go away somewhere else because um, people see a shirt and just kind of let it just see the claret and blue and just forget everything else. And, and I, I do get that. I mean, um, like I say, I started following Leighton Orient um, towards my end of my late teens. Uh, we'll be speaking more about orient and going and where we've been. But um, one thing when we go to away games, me and my friends, we never wear colours we never wear shirts because you know you don't want to stand out um in a foreign city you know um, you know hooliganism is not dead it is still there and it's a lot better than it was but there's still pockets of people and you you don't want to say go to a pub in Sheffield um for example wearing a shirt of your side because it, you, you instantly stand out and you might just want to blend in and go into a pub and have a drink and just, you know, be conspicuous, mm. you know. Well, you I mean, can't do that. <laughs> I mean, when um, West Ham, because I'm based in East London, West Ham used to play in Upton Park and pubs used to put a sign on the deal saying no away fans because they just but, didn't want the, the shit, which is quite yeah, a good segue. Yeah, and that is common. Um, that's common. Um, you tend to fine when because it's easy to police basically so if you were to go watch a side in let's say for example uh south end um there'll be a designated away fans pub there because it's easy for the police to patrol if you've got fans of a club just going here there and everywhere anything could be happening um 
you, you touch on hooliganism, and especially during the 80s and the 70s and the real dark days of hooliganism, um, you know, gangs of fans from each side could meet almost wherever, have their fight, mm. and it would be difficult to police. It, it's easier to police now because everything's done via mobile. It's all done via social media. Um, you know, my understanding is, is that it's a, it's organised almost like with military precision. If people want to do that kind of thing properly, they have to find somewhere to go far away, have their tear up, and they're in and out in like 60, 90 seconds. Um, well, it's easy to police now. Um, quite a seg- that's quite a segue, because we, we were going to move on to hooliganism, but just before I ask anything on that specifically, just um, to touch upon when it comes to the World Cup, that becomes a different, different matter because you've got so many different... London is one of the most diverse cities in the world and you've got people from all walks of life and they're all in the pub and if England aren't playing and um, Russia might be playing, you've got some people from Russia. I mean, do you not think that people should be, seeing as that England has given them residence, they should really put England as their, what they should be supporting to win the World Cup, not their... Um, <laughs> of birth. I mean, it's... It's really, isn't it? Um, I've known people that have, you know, had African, Asian roots, and they are avid England fans when it comes to, like, national tournaments. Others will prefer to support the country of that birth. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, um, it's a personal feeling. It's, it's a very tribal thing. You know, you attach yourself to this team or this nation, and it's what you feel, and that represents you. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I get yeah, get psychological. It's it's not very um it's frowned upon to be proud to be British. I think it's there's a strong connection with some kind of um right wing or um EDL kind of there is that. Um and that go once again goes back to the seventies and eighties because um you know back then you're talking about a time when the country itself was so depressed, you know, uh, how many unemployed there was, Thatcher was closing industry here, there and everywhere. And political movements like the National Front were going to football grounds and recruiting people. Now, these kids weren't necessarily racist or had an opinion on immigration or whatnot. They were just angry with nothing to do. Um, so they're going to the football to almost like that only chance they can let some aggression out, which is where a lot of this fighting started. And these political groups like the National Front Football will tap into that. Um, well, I mean, this all links in, this all kind of crossovers with hooliganism. So just a bit of a brief overview of the Sporting Origins. And I think this whole hooliganism idea started with the Nika riots, Nika revolt, um, which took place against Emperor Justinian I in Constantinople over the course of a week in 532 AD. And there were most violent riots in the city's history with nearly all of Constantinople being burned or destroyed and tens of thousands of people were killed. But with football-related violence, I think it goes back to the 14th century and 1314, Edward II banned football because at that time it was a very violent, unruly activity involving rival villagers kicking a pig's bladder across the local common. And he believed the disorder surrounding matches might lead to a social unrest or even treason. So according to the University of Liverpool, there was an academic paper which mentioned conflict at an 1846 match in Derby. And it actually involved the reading of the Riot Act, the two groups, um, effective response to the disorderly crowd. And the same paper mentioned pitch invasions as obviously happens even now. And, and, and you mentioned in the 1880s was quite a common occurrence in um Yeah, it, football. it goes back to those days, definitely. Because um, you think when football almost was in not so much invented because it you could point any point in the Middle Ages when it was invented, you know, two armies kicking a severed head around, for example. Yeah. 
Um, but yes, when the rules were invented by the, Eton the old Etonians, for example, and then they tended to stick more towards the rugby side of things, the working classes tended to take football as their own. You know, the original football league that was created, I think, was almost exclusively northern working class towns. Um, like you say, these invasions were commonplace in the 1880s. If something happened that one particular group of fans or people didn't like, they, they just <laughs> ruined the game. Um, the first alleged incident, incidents of proper hooliganism was uh, linked to a group of Preston fans that attacked yep. Queen's Park fans. Was it Aston Villa? Preston North End beat Aston Villa 5-0 and, and both teams were pelted with stones and spat on yeah. and kicked. And then a year later, that was when they attacked a uh, load of Queen's Park fans. Yes, in a railway station. Yeah. Um, so it's always been there. Um, I think it's almost like ingrained in people to have this, uh, in some people rather, to have this kind of tribal identity that you have to attach yourself to and fight for almost it, it's all you could always compare it to like gang culture you know you know disenfranchised children that need a family almost and they fall into these like gangs you know it's, it, was, it was a similar it's, there's there's uh, similarities between the two um yeah, certainly um, politics can play a part and you know if you go to go across to spain for example um and the main rivalry in Spain, I would say, is the Real Madrid-Barcelona rivalry. And the main factor behind that is Real Madrid are seen as being the team of the crown, of the monarchy of Spain, where in Barcelona are Catalans, and they want independence from that. But there's that political fight there, and people attach themselves to that, you know? It's like giving Identity. the cause to fight for. And the, yeah, and the football just forms almost like a part of that, you know? It's... it's it's not the overriding factor. It's just a part of it. The Hazel Stadium disaster. I don't know if you've heard of, of that. Yes. So, um, yeah, the between um, the European Cup final in 1985 between Liverpool and Juventus. And, um, you know, people will have an opinion on that, but almost unofficially, the blame was laying, uh, laid at the Liverpool fans' feet because they charged the Juventus fans. Uh, a wall, they, a bunch of fans got crushed against the wall. Right, yeah, irregular, yeah, irregular ticket sales and alcohol and the disinterest of organisers and the cowardly ineptitude of the police. Yeah, I think the yeah. Police I mean, does that sound familiar? It's not really to Hillsborough, doesn't it? Oh, um, 39 been. people died, 600 were injured. Um, there were other factors as well. The staging was falling apart to pieces. Um, it was actually remarked plenty at the time that why does this stadium have this major game when the Santiago Bernabeu was available? I think uh, Barcelona Stadium was available as well, and so was the San Siro. Why wouldn't you be holding the showpiece in one of these stadiums rather than this crumbling place in Brussels that's falling apart? Um, I mean, it was it, the Heysel disaster was one of many incidents that probably actually improved football in the long run. Um, you know, once Hillsborough happened... Um, Stadiums had to change, you know, they had to, you had to have all-seater stadiums, um, terraces in the top flights, at least in the higher capacity grounds of bands. You can still go to smaller grounds which have terraces in the lower leagues. Um, but also it had an, an effect on English football as well because Maggie Thatcher pulled English teams out of European competition at that point. At that point, English sides were actually very dominant in European competition, um, English teams had won seven of the previous 10 European Cups. Um, Nottingham Forest had two, 
Aston Villa had one and Liverpool had four. Um, at that point, they they banned English sides from European competition and English football fell behind. You know, in fact, it was 1999 before an English side won the European Cup again. That was Manchester United. Then that famous final that sealed the treble. It took us that long to catch up. But I mean, the only team that comes to mind, just to take a bit of a backward step, why, what is what is this with um, Millwall? Why is Millwall kind of the um, epicenter of the when people think of hooliganism and where does the whole issue of football rivalry actually originate? Because I know when West Ham was to play Millwall, oh, it was like you had the line, a line of police swarming the streets kind of ready for action. What is this Millwall issue? And I don't get the rivalry. How does it come about? Like we you watch Green Street in the football factory. We, well, to give the example of Millwall and West Ham, I mean, that's originates back in the days of the docks. So you had, the dock on the north side, the Thames Iron Works, and the docks on the south side of the Thames, the Millwall Works, and they were both competing for the same business. Oh, and that okay. kind of fed into the football. So, you know, there's also an employment reason behind that as well, you know, the competing over business and money. Um, as to why they have the, or had the most violent reputation as West Ham did, I think it's just people trying to outdo each other. You know, when you've got these groups of hooligans that are going about, you know, they want to be the most feared. They want to be the most notorious, you know. So, you know, people think, oh, my God, they're coming to town. We better, you know. Um, it's, it's notoriety. It's as simple as that. Notoriety, infamy. And if you do the worst things or the most violent acts, then you'll be remembered, won't you? Um, even now, sometimes you be in a pub somewhere and you'll hear people glorifying stories of things they got up to in the 80s and whatnot. Mm. You know, you couldn't believe it now. Um, and it's almost becomes like folklore. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll just caveat this. With, like, I don't agree with hooliganism at all. I think it's pathetic. I really do. Um, for me, at the minute now, football is a safe place to go. You do get the odd pockets of it, but in general, it's so hidden. You know, you can take your girlfriend to football, you can take your kids to football, you can take your family to football. In the eighties, you couldn't do that. Mm. You just couldn't. It wasn't safe enough. I mean, it's. I mean, Green Street basically highlighted. I whole think the whole West Ham Millwall, and is it really as violent as that? I mean, it's not something I've ever seen in action. Well, that that is a particularly bad rivalry, and yes, it is. Um, the last time they played each other, I believe it was 2010, and it was a League Cup game. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was like carnage. Um, all you've got to do is YouTube videos that people took of what was happening around the ground at that time. Uh, a friend of mine, personal friend of mine, actually lived on Green Street opposite the old ground in the top floor flat. And he was texting me, telling me what was going on. It's just, you know, I can't go out there. It's just a war zone. You know, it's genuinely scary for the average person in the street. It's just that you don't get it with any other, any other sport. I mean, you don't get kind of, you know, having cricket fans and, or um, solo individual sports, people kind of... It does happen in some other sports. Um, you look at the rivalry in Turkey between Galatasaray and Fenerbahce, which again is another class example where um, I believe it was Galatasaray are the perceived as being the middle class side and Fenerbahce are the working class blue collar team. But they've got teams in basketball, in volleyball, in handball. And there's hooliganism at these as well. You really? Know? really? Just, I know, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. 
but that's something that's almost like ingrained in the Turkish culture, it seems. Um, I mean, yeah. I've been to one football match and it was um, it was when um, West Ham played Sunderland and Steve Bruce was the manager and it was just absolutely vile. I hated it because every time the ball came near the goal, you had to stand up, everyone standing up. And you'd, and it's linked to my next point about drinking culture and football. The I was right next to the away section and it, they were just completely smashed off their face, swearing at the police and just... Really, so you got drinking culture and football. Do you, why do people have to be drunk to enjoy football? And this is not just the the players. I'm sorry, not just the fans. It's the players because you had the Arsenal Tuesday Drinking Club, mm-hmm. um, and why and footballers are becoming alcoholics. Tony Adams, Paul Merson, George Best, Paul Gascoigne, Mar- Maradona, and even English and drinking has been criticised since the first century AD by the Roman writer Tacitus. So I don't know what is it. Um, I don't know if you'd attest to enjoying a quite a very strong beverage at eleven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Well, I won't, I won't uh, confirm or deny it, but um, you don't you don't have to be drunk and you don't have to drink to enjoy football. Of course you don't. Uh, but once again, it's pack mentality. It, it's something that is associated with going to the pub with your mates and what you know, not even going to a physical game. You know, you can go there and there'll always be a game from somewhere in the world on the telly in a pub anywhere. It, it, it just will happen, and it just kind of joins people. It, it, it is a game that is linked to the working class pubs. You know, it's, there's, there's no other way about it, really. Um, I don't think people have to be drunk to enjoy it. I think people just do. Um, they just let go. It's almost like a release. It's, a, it's, a, it's an easy correlation to make. I think you can't actually drink during the match, but you can drink um, in the interval. Yes, no, half time, sorry, the interval. <laughs> yeah, um, no, a lot. You know, you're not you're not allowed to take in, um, intake alcohol in the ground itself. Um, a lot of places will have a licensed area, like a bar, which you can visit before half time or after the game. Um, but most people just go to the pub before and after. Um, from my experience, anyway, um, you could yeah, you can't take alcohol into the stands. That you've just been. Yeah, I mean, you see how some people behave in some kind of... Oh, yeah, I mean, players are still um, getting pelted with um, all kinds of projectiles. Which... Yeah, coins, lighters. I mean, stewarding today is so much better. It goes back to the point I made before, because it's it, it is so much safer to go watch football now compared to where it used to be once upon a time. I mean, you know, you, you hear horror stories of people that went to places in the 80s, grounds like Stanford Bridge, um, and I've told stories about darts flying above their head, pool balls that people have taken from wow. pubs, throwing them at, you know, and, you know, you treat people like caged animals, they're going to behave like them. Um, but the Hillsborough disaster eradicated people being fenced in and, mm. you know, for people's own safety more than anything. And it's something that has worked. Um, I think you're gonna. It, it does attract at times a type of person that will behave that way, regardless. You know, and it just gives an excuse. Well, I mean, this this is something that I mentioned in the last episode on Black Lives Matter when people don't really give a damn about the cause; they just want to use the um, use the movement as an and a chaos to just go you know, absolutely apeshit and you, just. Completely. Um, and it's, you know, when you think about the um, era of films that came out, sort of like uh, the early part of the 2000s, that were almost like glorifying hooligan culture. You know, you gave the example of Green Street, also the football factory um, starring Danny Dyer. Mm-hmm. Um, almost made 
it, it, it made it look dangerous, but also always tried to give it like a comedic kind of twist and like, oh, you know, it's all a bit of a laugh, it's just banter kind of thing. But I mean, know, people can cross these paths, you know, if you've got 50, 40 something year old blokes absolutely beating the you know what out of each other, you know, <laughs> if you're a young mum walking with a pram by you, you're going to be terrified. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not just the fans. I mean, like, like the players I mentioned. I mean, Tony Adams, Thomas, and I mean, it, it's not a career that really lasts very long because as soon as you kind of hit mid thirties, you're kind of out of your prime. And if you don't do punditing or some kind of commentary, then you end up kind of just drinking your life away, as so many footballers do. Problem is now, um, I don't think you can get away with that anymore because the level of performance Fitness, you need yeah. at the top at the pinnacle. You can't drink. It's as simple as that. You can't imbibe things like uh, whatever recreational drugs, like you say. Maradona was famous for having a cocaine problem. Uh, Paul Merson came out from a gambling addict, cocaine. Um, Tony Adams and the drinking culture. As you say, the famous Tuesday Club. Um, a lot of it does did come down to boredom for these guys as well, because your life is regimented. You're literally just training game, training game, training game, and they had a period of three days, which is why they went out on a Tuesday, mm. maybe ready for the Friday and get whatever it was out of that system before the match on the Saturday. Um, and, you know, sort of like towards the end of the 90s, they had a lot more money. I mean, people from Adams's era, um, um, but it was, it, it was boredom more than anything. And they're just like drinking and gambling and, you know, devil waits work for idle hands almost. Um, Tony Adams came came out as being an alcoholic and turned his life around and created the Sporting Chance Clinic, helping other athletes that have similar problems. But, you know, today people can't, if you're going to see people with problems in that regard, they're going to be a lot lower down the pyramid and probably will fall by the wayside because you won't have heard of them. Um, going back to Lake Norrie, we, we had a player for us called Sean Thornton who was known for being, for liking a drink. Um, and he was on the books of Sunderland and Sheffield United, but, you know, probably one of the most talented players that I have seen at the Orient. And, you know, you think you should have made more of your career, but he liked to party, he liked to drink. Because he was doing that, he couldn't make it at the top level. He just wouldn't. I'm sure that, and this has only been passed on by word of mouth. I don't know um, how much truth there is to this, but the England... World Cup win of I can't remember what date it was. That's quite embarrassing. When they won the World won the World Cup and Jeff Hurst um, was playing on the team, and apparently I was told that most of the team were on a massive bender the night before, and they won the it's World Cup on a hangover. It's possible. Um, it's a different era. Um, you know, people used to smoke at half time. You know, they probably be sparking up a half time fag in the sixties. <laughs> um, Brian Clough famously. Um, in one of his stories of his management was um, when he got to the first European Cup final with Nottingham Forest, his players were so nervous, he literally locked them, so locked them in the room with three crates of lager and told them none of you are leaving until all that's gone. And um, they basically all admitted they played hungover the next day, but they won, you know, and that was, it was to calm their nerves. It's like if they'd gone out, they would have, they would have lost the game without that. Um, but Brian Clough was a man of um, dubious methods, shall we say, that probably would have worked once upon a time. But 
wouldn't have been tolerated in today's game. No, I mean, that just reminds me, a bit of a digression, it reminds me where um, Sean Connery, when he had to utter the famous line, the name's Bond, James Bond, he could not say it, and the director literally had to get him completely smashed. And even Sean Connery himself can't remember <laughs> doing it. Various stories like that where people have come out with, um, as well, the guy's name escapes me, it was a Scottish manager, I can't remember his name, because he was played for a small side, and apparently one of his players clashed heads with a member of the opposition, his physio told him, you've got to take him off. He doesn't know who, he's, who he is. And his answer was, great, tell him he's fucking Pele and put him back on. Oh. <laughs> so just, remind me, he just reminds me of the silly quirks like Eric Cantona going and kicking a fan in, in the leg and breaking his leg. <laughs> just the craziness oh, of football in the early days. Oh, yeah, that, that, that instant was um, something else. I mean, it's something <laughs> that you just don't really see um, <laughs> where a player will... Attack a fan. Um, I mean, Cantona was a notorious hothead anyway. He was just <laughs> a lunatic. Um, and this guy claims he was saying something on the lines of, off you go, Eric, it's an early bar for you. And it's like, well, if you actually see the footage and the lip reading, it's a little bit stronger than that. Uh, um, just lost it. Uh, it got banned for eight months, I believe. People go to these grounds, and I'm sure we'll be touching on this shortly with um, a couple of the other subjects you wanted to bring up, but people go to these grounds and feel that because they pay their money for their ticket, they can say what they want to the players on the pitch with no recourse or kind of um, consequence, which is wrong. I mean, I've heard some absolutely disgusting things being chanted at players, and as soon as someone turns around and gives it a bit back, you know, they're offended straight away. Oh, what's he doing? How dare he say that to me? I pay your wages and all that kind of stuff. And you're just like, mate, grow up. It's almost like a heckler at a comedy club, which you yeah. don't really, and sometimes the comedian completely owns the heckler. And just Some of it's clever. Don't get me wrong. Some, you hear some chances, yeah. some of it is clever and it is funny, but some of it is just in bad taste. You know, um, you know main instant that comes to mind was uh, the one people used to sing at David Beckham about Posh Spice and... Um, oh. Where she like, which particular orifice she likes to have sex in. <laughs> um, and, yeah, but, you know, that's the man's wife at the end of the day, isn't it? You don't go... That's the price of being in the public eye, really. I mean... It, it is. And the thing is, you've got to maintain such composure and do mm. your job and play the game as a professional in the face of all this vitriol at times. Well, you've got to be a strong personality to handle that. And then that goes back to what you're saying about the drinking culture amongst players and some drugs and gambling. Some people use it as an escape too. Yeah, something to do on their Saturday morning. <laughs> hmm. But you think now, like you're saying about Twitter and Facebook, right? If you're a footballer and you know you've had a bad game, um, you know, say you got sent off or you scored an own goal or something, the, the last thing you want to do is go on Twitter because you <laughs> just, yeesh, you could just imagine the cesspit, you know. <laughs> It's quite, um, it was quite just a bit of a digression. It was quite good that the Black Mirror episode made a very, very good um, story on the whole trolling culture. I think it was one with um, Hated in the Nation, where all these trolls that voted for the death of a particular person, they got their comeuppance in the end. In the I meeting. did, yeah. So, I mean, just don't say, if, you, if you've got nothing nice to say, it just goes to the old saying, don't just say don't say anything at all. Uh, um, just actually just wanted to point out um, something else. Should high-profile players such as Marcus Rashford use his influence to change attitudes in respect to LGBT and other issues surrounding football as opposed to children eating a better school meal? Uh, to a degree, yeah. yeah he should. I think 
the fact that he's used his position to highlight something so noble as child poverty is admirable and you know he's been given an MBE for it mm. um, there is a line I believe though I mean when you start getting into real political discourse you start to get a bit dangerous now FIFA have always banned any kind of political religious or commercial advertising on a shirt so you'll find if anyone celebrates a goal, takes their shirt off and they're wearing a T-shirt with a political movement or whatever, um, they can be heavily sanctioned for it. Um, the thing you've got at the minute, obviously, as you've alluded to in previous podcasts, is the Black Lives Matter movement and the taking of the knee. Um, and now in recent weeks, what you've found happened is that um, a player called Wilfred Zaha, plays for Crystal Palace, um, Ivory Coast International, um, he's basically come out and said he's no longer going to do it because to him it's an empty gesture. Um, he wants to see actual steps taken to eradicate racism in the game and taking the knee is now just almost like just just a gesture. It's just an empty gesture to him. Um, he, he could almost like allude that to other things, sort of like, you know, um, clap for the NHS. Oh, yeah. When everyone went outside in the streets. Yeah. The now, the first time that happened, it was quite a powerful thing. You know, and it was, everyone did it, and it, it, you know, but then it started becoming every Thursday and the meaning of it got less and less and less. Um, and all of a sudden it seemed to become a case of uh, who can video themselves banging a pan the loudest or honking a car horn the loudest, who can do this the loudest. And it just becomes virtue signaling. Um, it, 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 to him, it, he said it lost its power. There's a fine line. There's a very fine line. I'll give you another example. Um, going back about 10 years, there's a player called Nicolas Anelka, uh, French international, and he scored a goal for West Brom against West Ham, and he celebrated his goal by making a gesture which is called the Cornell. Now, the Cornell is basically a inverted Nazi salute. Um, it was created by a black right-wing comedian in France called uh, Diodon Mabala Mabala. Um, and it's a friend of his, and he said he'd done it in support of him because he'd been sanctioned for being anti-Semitic, uh, right-wing. There's plenty political discussion about this, this guy we can find online. But he was hauled over the coals for that, um, accused of being anti-Semitic himself in performing the gesture. Um, he's always... It proclaimed his innocence and said it was just in, in um, solidarity with his friend. But you can't do things like that, <laughs> you know, in a public forum. Mark Bosnich, uh, the Aston Villa goal, ex Aston Villa Man United goalkeeper, um, he was being taunted by a crowd once and he turned around and gave a Hitler salute and the arm out and he was photographed doing it and he was absolutely lambasted for it, rightly so. I mean, what's the whole, I mean, you mentioned salutes. I mean, I remember seeing someone in, in a pub uh, many years ago and he was an Indian man and he had a swastika on his hand. And I thought, what the hell? And doing some research, I mean, it is actually a Hindu um, symbol. It's to do yeah, with this it religious is. symbol that by was adopted by the Nazis. Um, it was adopted by the Nazis and the spokes were actually the other way around. So if the spokes are the other way around, it's, um, it's as you say, it's, I think it's a Hindu symbol of peace. Yeah. Um, no one would ever associate with no. Uh, and no one would ever say, well, the spokes are the other way around. So that's a peace symbol, not a swastika. Um, yeah, you've got to be, you have to be so careful in this day and age. I mean, with what Marcus Rashford did in highlighting a government's incompetence, whatever rights and wrongs you have against the Tory government, the way they handled the poverty situation, 
with children when it was highlighted was absolutely disgusting and he he rightly shamed them yeah oh, yeah because that would be quite a digression it's just one last thing you mentioned I, i've wanted to touch on this before and about marcus ratchford getting an mba and i forget the order of the whole title cbe commander of the british empire then you've got member and then you've got um order and i'm not sure but i mean with sport and this is my personal opinion all these sportsmen are getting damehoods and knighthoods and they're not even 30 i mean look kelly holmes Mm. and like he was just a very fast runner and i don't know what she did to deserve getting a knighthood so early in their life i think you should do more and just because this marcus scratch has done a very good thing um over the course of a year he's been slapped with a title what about people like i mean david um david beckham's really craving <laughs> craving a title i mean he's done quite a lot um over the years football even simon cowell not, not many people agree with what he does but he's still done a lot for the music industry and and there's people out there that haven't got anything. So all these sportsmen are just getting slapped with bloody Tom Daly's. Just, he's just a diver. It, it, it is all in context. I mean, it does seem to me that a lot of sporting figures do receive commendations and titles. If, if they've provided real service to the sport, then yes, I'll get that, you know, completely. Um, I do feel that Marcus Rashford deserved an MBE for what he did in his work in the child poverty Um bringing that to national attention people like um oh, names just escape me now but um she was paralympian swimmer um ellie ellie goldsmith um and she's i believe an mbe and you know she fully deserves that um you know does lewis hamilton deserve a, an mbe or a title he just drives a very fast car i think knighthood goes a bit too much i'm sorry i yeah, think you need to i mean you know for me a knighthood is something for someone that's really changed people's lives, yeah. you know, um, you know, you look at people in football that have been knighted, like uh, Sir Bobby Moore, you know, uh, captained England to the World Cup. You know, Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, the most decorated yeah. manager of all time. You know, um, Sir Bobby Robson, you know, <laughs> goes without saying the lives he touched and what he won people only remember him as being England manager but he was successful all around Europe you know he won things everywhere he went and it's it's very subjective when it comes to the honours list because then you you look at it and you think what what have you done what have you done yeah I mean like I said Alex Ferguson didn't get anything till he was well at least in his 50s 60s Michael Caine didn't get anything till he was much later in life, provided service to that industry for a long time. You know, it's um, yeah. I mean, it, it it almost seems like anyone that's remotely a celebrity can yeah. receive a time. That's how it comes across. You know what's going to happen next? Yeah. Ryan and Clark Neil will be bloody get slapped with something, and then we we'll, we know the world is coming to an end. It, it dilutes it, you know. If you've got like, um, you know, it doesn't mean more if you've got a knighthood, if there's a hundred knights rather than 10,000 knights. It's almost like sommelier status. Sommeliers, I think there's only about um, several hundred in the whole world. It's not something easy to attain. No, it's not. I mean, you look at our old head teacher at St. Bob's, Michael Wilshaw, you know, he's now the head of Ofsted and he's he was knighted for his services to education because yeah. he would just go to schools and turn, in inner cities and turn them around. Yeah. You know, so services to education, that, that deserves a knighthood. Right, lastly, just wanted to mention the last subject, um, which is probably quite relevant and quite interesting. So Justin Flashnew's suicide, 
clearly there's not made much of an impact in the sport of football. So LGBTQ plus names in sports include Nicola Adams in boxing, Ian Roberts in rugby, Tom Daly in diving, and the list goes on. So in that respect, why are football players completely devoid in this respect? And just an on just before um, you you take over, just there was an online poll, and eighty two percent was in favour of openly gay footballers, and only eight percent of fans would have a problem with a gay player on their supporting side. So what is? And even Thomas Hitzelsberger was advised against by his manager. I can't remember what team it was. Oh, it's, it's amazing you should mention Hitzelsberger because um, he was one I wanted to mention actually when you mentioned about LGBT players. Um, the problem is, uh, I, I think primarily it is fear. Um, people have seen like the strides that black footballers have had to make to overcome some of the worst racial prejudice. Um, you know, you talk about Justin Fashion, who, who wasn't just an openly gay footballer, he was black. a black footballer at a time when black footballers were, you know, people in the crowd were throwing bananas at them. Yeah, you know, making monkey chants at them. So you had that double edge there. Um, you don't. You do have a few names, and um, mainly bigger in the women's game. So they're like, you know, the big names. Yeah. You know, Megan Rapinoe is probably the biggest on women's football at the minute. She's openly gay. Uh, Hope Powell used to manage the uh, British women's team. Openly gay. Casey Stoney, the old England women's captain, openly gay. You know. There's progression there in the women's game. Yeah, women do tend to kind of have a bit of an easier yeah. ride in that respect. I wouldn't say easier ride, but it's probably um, it's probably less of a less of a stigma. not so much a stigma, less of a nasty spotlight on mm. that game. It probably is a consequence of it not being as big as the men's game. Um, that's a completely different discussion. But in the men's game, who have you got? You mentioned Thomas Hitzelberger. Yes, he came out as openly gay, but only once he retired. Mm. Uh, he was the Aston Villa captain. Um, he retired and then he came out as gay. Robbie Rogers, um, who used to play for the Leeds and is an American footballer, came out as gay once again after he retired. Um, the only name I could find as an openly gay player in the British Leeds is a semi-pro named Liam Davis. Um, there is, I think it. I think it does come down to fear. Um, they have, like I said, been polls. I think a lot of players would have the utmost backing of their peers. I think there's a long way to go before the crowds will accept it, and it's that's really sad to say. Um, you say that poll said 82 percent of people um, would back it. Um, I disagree with that. Um, once you get them up together, it, it, my mentality takes over. I'll give you the example of Sol Campbell, who used to play for Arsenal and Tottenham, um, and the abuse he took. And he's a heterosexual, but because he's not your stereotypical football player, uh, you know, he's a bit educated. He likes the finer things. You know, he's got finer tastes in. You know, in, he's an educated man people were slandering him as being gay when he's not and using it as an insult. Okay. Um, and he got a lot of abuse for it. I mean, even now people still say Sol Campbell is a, you know, and people, I think genuine, because look, you know, how many people play football in Britain today? How many people as a, a proportion of the population are homosexual? Um, what, I mean, what's the statistic they throw away? Was it 10%? So, you're trying to tell me those three names I gave you earlier, the only gay footballers in the nation right now, 
there's plenty more, but there's two, two. Yeah. and it's going to take one person, one person to be brave enough to come out and say, do you know what? I don't care. This is me. And take that vitriol, which will come sadly, um, to pave the way for others. Um, it's sad. It shouldn't be that way. It really shouldn't. And, you know, it's football lets itself down in some respects with that. You go back to Justin Fashionu, you know, he was, you know, a Bernardo's child raised in rural Norfolk. He came out in 1990, halfway through his career. He was the first one million pound black footballer, you know, when Nottingham Forest signed him from Norwich. And Brian Clough mismanaged him, you know. He even put in his autobiography that, you know, he he, he says, I twigged him after three months, I knew what he was, but claims he had no problem with his homosexuality. Yet, mm. in, and it, it was quoted like he had him in his office and said to him something like, well, you know, if you go to, if you want to buy a loaf of bread, where do you go to? And fashion, he went, well, the baker's, and said, well, if you want a leg of lamb, where do you go to? And he said, well, a butcher's. And he goes, right, so why are you in that effing puffs club every Saturday night? <laughs> you know, and that's what you've got to deal with. I, I think he was, I think fashion, he was let down by football and society at the time, and it could have been handled a hell of a lot better. But I think if there, you know, no if, gay footballers that are out there see what happened to him and probably think, you know what, I want no part of that. I'll keep mm. it it until I'm out of the game I've made my money and then I'll live my life um, I mean it's just I mean for such kind of um, all these football players are very very well known but if you ever check a Wikipedia page on any footballer it's always just you know nothing about their personal life for some reason they're able to keep it so well hidden they'll just talk about their league clubs statistics no marriage or kids or nothing it's just very very um PR in football, every major club has a machine that just works tirelessly um, to keep their players safe almost because, you know, you'll notice if a footballer ever does an interview on the telly, it's very stock answers. It's very yeah. like, you know, you can just see it's not them speaking from the heart. Yeah. If they do, it's normally in the tabloid and it gets torn to pieces. It's almost like they have to live life like a robot, you know, and the counter argument to that is well they're paid all this money they're paid all this money they should just like it and, you know there's a lot of footballers out there that suffer with depression um there's a fascinating series of books by it's by an anonymous author it's called the secret footballer okay. and it's someone that has played the game at the highest level um and has literally only retired in the last two or three years and he writes about his experiences very candidly he touches on the subject of gay footballers and race in football um depression in football as well because everything is micromanaged for these guys you know timetable to the minute where they have to be for breakfast where they have to be to go to this place where they have to be go to that and once their career's over all that's gone they ain't got a clue what to do yeah back in the old days it was always a stereotype of um you know the ex-england international opens up a pub but you know that, (laughs) that doesn't happen and a lot of them fall by the wayside blow their money because they haven't got good guidance it's what well, just yeah it's just but i think i definitely agree it's just definitely the boredom factor with um yeah, not definitely. having any kind of skills because it's all they all they know but you know i mean 
going back to the original point with, with LGBT footballers, it, it is going to take a huge name and a very strong personality to make that first step. And I think once that happens, you'll see it become normalised. Like, it is normalised in everyday life now, you know. Yeah. As it should be. You know, people live their lives. What you do is your business. Um, but it will take that first step because football crowds can be quite, at, at times they can be cauldrons of hate. Right. Anyway, well, thanks for your points today. Um, you, did you just want to quickly mention your fundraising um, campaign? Yeah, so- Basically, um, I talk about Leighton Orient. You know, um, I talk about my friend, my good friend Dave Thompson, who I was introduced to by my friend Joe. Um, I've been bugging Joe to come Orient with me for a while, and then he started coming because he told me, "Oh, one of my sister's work colleagues goes. He's a great guy. We'll go meet with him." And then we met Dave, and then Dave introduced us to his group of friends. And you know, these are fellas that I'll go football with and I've become lifelong friends that I've known for 15 years or so now. You know, they took us to away games, home games, you know, and the football's almost secondary, you know what I mean? It's just group of lads going out, going around the country, having a laugh, spending time together, you know, and just you know, just enjoying enjoying trips away. And the football was almost like a distraction of it. Um, the reason I wanted to mention Dave is that sadly he passed away two years ago. Um he literally was a healthy 38-year-old man. He suffered a cardiac arrest in the night. Uh, he went to bed and never woke up. Um, it turned out that there were various problems with his heart, where his heart hadn't developed properly, and these were never picked up. Um, consequently from that, um, a friend... Oh, sorry, I just need a second. Um, a good friend of his, uh, Terry, Terry Wood has decided to do a fundraising drive for cardiac um, respiratory in the young. Um, I can't explain it better than Terry does, so I'm just going to read directly from his page for you and describe what he's trying to do. That's fine, and I'll include a link in the description section. Thank you. So he calls the event Less Log. So basically, in memory of David Thompson... I will be walking from John O'Groats to Land's End this summer on Less Log to raise money for CRY and would really value your donation. This cause is particularly important to me following the death of my great friend David Thompson, who passed away suddenly at home in September 2019 following a cardiac arrest. David was just 38 and recently married to Emily. He was an accomplished and dedicated teacher and a hugely positive influence in the lives of so many people. David was fit and strong and there had been no signs of cardiac problems, so his passing came as a tremendous life-changing shock to all those who were close to him. What happened to David emphasises the need for heart screening for young people and public awareness about the hidden dangers that can exist for so many of them. CRY offers subsidised ECG and echocardiogram screening for all young people between the ages of 14 and 35. Raising awareness of the service is as important as raising money to support it. And he gives the link to http www.cry.org.uk. At one or two of the lowest points in my life, it was Dave who I turned to for help and support. It was, of course, given willingly in that warm, straightforward way that those of us who loved him so well came to know so well. So this is the least I can do. The slog is approximately 1,200 miles long, following high routes and avoiding roads as much as humanly possible. I will be starting 21st of July, and hope to reach Land's End by late August. I'll be keeping in contact with Civilization through regular Twitter and Facebook updates. 
letting everybody know where I am and how I'm doing. The legs are getting old, but the spirit is willing. Thank you for taking the time to read my page and please donate what you can. Um, <laughs> Terry's set a target of £10,000 and he's currently raised just over 3200 for this very worthy cause. Especially being a late Orient fan, um, we lost our manager, Justin Edinburgh, not long prior to Dave's passing in similar circumstances, a cardiac arrest out of nowhere. Um, I know this is something that's also quite close to you, James, because I know you suffered with congenital heart defects in the past, as you've alluded to in your previous podcast too. Um, and it's just a worthy cause. Um, as you said, the, the page is www.justgiving.com slash fundraising slash Terry dash Wood for that's number four. Yeah, I'll add, I'll add the link in the description. Yeah, I mean, would, um, just finishing off, just you do get quite a lot of footballers, um, well, a fair few that have actually died on the pitch due to mm. unknown heart um, I think there was one that didn't die. He was resuscitated on the pitch and had. Um, so yeah. That's the one, yeah. So it's. I was actually watching that game on the telly. We were actually down at the Orient, um, and we were, that was on the TV when we were in the bar afterwards. When we were watching that, and when that happened, it was just like definitely silence fell upon the whole place. It was like you know this is something really serious, and the fact that guy survived was a miracle. There was a doctor in the stadium that was actually a heart specialist that got to him quick and they literally physically massaged his heart for 45 minutes to keep him alive it was a miracle absolute miracle um you know um other names mark vivian foe same thing collapsed on the pitch cardiac arrest and you know numerous others that have fit individuals that have been running marathons running triathlons collapse and die Get yourself checked out, whoever you are. All right, thanks for your um, contributions Sorry to today. Sorry to end on such a somber note, James. Sorry to end on such a somber note, but <laughs> That's it was fine. a good thing. And thank you for allowing me to talk right. that. Harry. No problem. Right. Thank you and good night.